I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. I feel like this next guest needs no introduction. Today, we are going to be listening to Dr. Anita Johnston. And for those of you who have read the book, Eating in the Light of the Moon, you know exactly who I'm talking about. And if you haven't, you're in for a treat to hear Anita talk about how she helps clients through storytelling and metaphor. All right, let's go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am so honored to be sitting here right now with a colleague and someone who I have known for years, and I'm honored to say that, Dr. Anita Johnston. Anita, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I am I am so thrilled to have you here. And I would like for you to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself because if they don't, for whatever reason, if the name isn't triggering anything, at least every client I've ever worked worked with is absolutely going to remember who you are when you talk about your book and your metaphors. <laughs> and so go ahead, Anita. Okay, who am I? Well, I'm a storyteller and I'm a psychologist and I've been working with women with eating difficulties or body image distress for probably over 35 years. I wrote a book, Eating in the Light of the Moon, and I have an online course that's sort of like a, a workbook, an interactive workbook or women's circle or book club for Eating in the Light of the Moon. And so I also am the clinical director at IPONO, which is my residential facility in Maui, and the executive director for ILC in Tennessee, working with eating disorders. And before COVID, <laughs> I did a lot of workshops and, and retreats. And now most all of my work is, is pretty much virtual online, I work with folks from around the world individually and then uh, at the Light of the Moon Cafe. Can you explain a little bit about at the Light of the Moon Cafe? Because it is phenomenal. So I, I, I really want people to fully, fully get the gist of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, years ago, pe well, people just kept asking me, well, aren't you going to do a workbook for eating in the light of the moon? And honestly, whenever I thought of it, I couldn't, I couldn't feel inspired. I just thought, oh, I don't know. There's just not, it didn't inspire me. And I can't do things unless I love them. So that's just one of my quirks. And then a friend of mine and colleague, Elizabeth Peterson, who's a dietitian, she and I had been doing soul hunger workshops around the country, and she was running eating in the light of the moon support groups. 
And she said to me, well, Anita, do you think we could do this online? And this was, this was almost 15 years ago. So nobody was doing things online. I thought, create women's circle online? Gee, I don't know. Let's try. And so um, we spent about a year putting it together. And basically what it is, is it's, it's eating in the light of the moon with um, a different chapter every week. So for example, we, we, in the interactive courses, we might say, okay, this week we're reading chapter seven in, in eating in the light of the moon. And so the next day, would be me telling a story from that chapter. Then the next day might be some story questions to help you see how this applies personally to your life. And then the next day might be a poem that, and then the next day might be an audio of me telling a metaphor. And then the next day might be a drawing or writing activity. And then the next day might be a playlist of songs to listen to. And so every week we go through that series for eight weeks. And then there's a forum. And because we have people all over the world, it doesn't matter. You can go to the forum at three o'clock in the morning to see what people wrote and put in your own comments if you like. You don't have to, but a lot of people do. And then I respond to all the comments and all the questions. And it's wild. It's very cool. The, the women in the group are so supportive. It's unbelievable how supportive it is. And then we have several live calls. And so I have three of those courses. And then I have a handful of self-study courses because the interactive courses, you have to wait, right? You have to wait till everybody's there. And then it's like a course, you be, everyone begins and ends. But there are sometimes people are going, well, I don't want to wait six months for a course. And so I have several self-study courses that they're not interactive. I'm not in there, although they're videos of me. It's my voice. And, but you can take them at any time. So I have one on, on uh, cracking the hunger code, how to find your the metaphors hidden in the foods you, you restrict or the foods you crave. And then I have one that is um, on assertiveness because I think that's the most essential recovery skill. I've never seen anyone recover without that skill. So there's that course. And I have a new one that I'm just uh, getting ready to launch, which is the four faces of the feminine psyche which is really beyond disordered eating. It's really getting into learning about who you are uh, and the different phases in a woman's life that correspond with different aspects of your personality so that you can access them at any time when you need their gifts. So that's what I'm doing at the cafe. And I love it. I it's it is so rich and full and vulnerable and powerful. I just all these things. I just I love that you're doing it. You know, it's interesting because I, you know, how do I how do I start this? First of all, I want to start by focusing on two things. One is storytelling because it is powerful. But first, I want to talk about the power of women in a circle. And and by the way, we're very aware that men, you know, non-binary, anybody can get an eating disorder. For the sake of this conversation, we're talking about women in a women's circle. And the reason why I want to talk about it is I attended. Tending the feminine psyche. Tending to the feminine. In Hawaii. In Hawaii. <laughs> and that was, we were talking about probably 12 years ago. And when I was in my eating disorder, Anita, that retreat 
would have terrified me. A circle of women, which by the way, I was afraid of when I was younger. And I don't mean like for reasons that I was going to get harmed, but other women intimidated me. I felt less than. I never felt like I fit in with a circle of women. And so there is something about the power of healing in a circle. And, and again, by the time I got to Hawaii, I was, I was so healed. I was recovered. I was a therapist, all this, that I just absorbed mm-hmm. the healing of everyone. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit to that, the feminine psyche, healing in a circle, things like that? Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, the Light of the Moon Cafe has been so powerful is that there are many that felt exactly like you. And so this is a way to kind of tip your your big toe into what it's like to be in the circle because you're doing it virtually. But the circle, it, it brings together, women in circle bring together two very powerful archetypes. One is the feminine principle, which is what I work with a lot, which is the part of ourselves that we all have, by the way, whether we're male, female, non-binary, regardless of your gender, we all have this aspect of ourselves that is more emotional, instinctual, intuitive, and relational. However, we live in a culture that for many years, thousands of years even, has suppressed that. And I happen to believe that that is part of what contributes significantly to eating disorders and body image distress is that we get cut off from our instincts, our emotions, our intuitions, and our relationships. So bringing this, the feminine principle into circle is doubly powerful because first of all, you have people that are the embodiment of the feminine principle, right? And and then you have circle, which takes away the hierarchy. There's not a top dog or bottom dog. There's not, you know, it's a very different energetic experience. And then if you take it a little further, and this is what the indigenous people have been able to hold onto, uh, despite the pressures from the patriarchy that we live in today, is that when you quarter a circle, you make it sacred. And sacred being, that's where you can do transformational inner work. And and so that really, really supports what someone is trying to do when they're trying to recover, for example. It's like, it's, in fact, I don't even, I don't know if I like the word recovery as much anymore as transformation, because that's essentially what it is. So when you quarter a circle, a lot of times, uh, many cultures do it, for example, with the four directions. When you quarter a circle with the four directions, you create a cross. And in the center of those four directions is what we call here. Right? It's like north, south, east, west, and here. Right? And then, and if you do the same with, let's say, the cardinal times of day. So dawn, uh, uh, dusk, um, noon, and midnight, the center of that is now right and so this is where you have access to energy for healing so now you bring all of this together and you bring those that are 
the embodiment of the feminine principle gathering in circle and you can see why it has been done for for eons and and we don't even realize it though let me give you an example and this isn't just with women in circle but to give you an idea of what happens when we gather in circle and do ritual so Oftentimes we might light candles or we might chant or, uh, and I'll give you an example of something that everyone has done. I'll bet every single one of your listeners has done this kind of circle and, and, and where we gather around and we light candles and we chant happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to right. So we're, doing it without realizing it. So we, at some deep level, we understand it's powerful and we want it. We go there. It is it, one of the other things that, that I'm hearing you say and that I've experienced since, and I do like the word transformation since my transformation is honoring my feminine side. Mm -hmm. And as opposed to, I think because of patriarchal and women being known as very emotional or whatnot, all of those, I'm going to call them judgments, were kind of who I was. I'm a very emotional person, right? I'm all these things. And so it wasn't until I dropped into myself that I could honor and with pride move forward with my feminine energy. Does that make sense? Yeah, because basically what, first of all, what recovery is, is being your authentic self, bottom line, so that your innermost feelings are in alignment with your outermost behaviors. That's really, really what it looks like. But so I, and I do think that for women, it's particularly difficult, but not just women, anyone that's been marginalized, that doesn't um, carry out what in some ways is the opposite of these principles. So we live in a culture that says you need to be logical, linear, goal, achievement oriented, and, and, and denies the instinctual side of ourselves. What is that? That's, the, that's our bodies that know when to eat and when to stop eating and when to move and when to rest and when to go to the bathroom or whatever. And our culture says, no, 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 keep on going. Or no, 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 you're supposed to look like that. So you can't eat now, you have to eat. And so we're taken away from that part of the feminine, which is instinctual. And then as you mentioned, the emotional component, oh my gosh, you know, how many times has someone said, oh, you're, you're too sensitive wait a minute, what does that mean? You're overreacting. Wait, what are you saying? So it's been used as a put down of an extraordinary quality because people that are very emotionally sensitive are extremely empathetic and compassionate. And the world needs that now more than anything, which is why I say all the time, those that get on the recovery journey uh, um, are those that people, the whole world has been waiting for because of that. And then if you take the intuition, and now it's called women's intuition, but of course, not only women have intuition, but there something, there's something to be said, I think, for the uterine brain, right? We, that, that taps into ways of knowing that are not necessarily uh, evident when we're using our five senses or when we're using logic, those are those times you just know, like someone calls you, oh my gosh, I, I, I was just thinking of you, right? That kind of knowing that is inherently part of the feminine principle. And that is, we're told that's crazy, right? We're saying, well, where's the facts? You can't, you know, you, you can't talk about that. You don't have the facts. 
And then when you think about relatedness and relationships, oh my gosh, I mean, we are relational beings. And, and, and I'm not talking simply, but certainly about relationships with other people, but also with the earth, with nature, with the connection of all things. And so um, that's the part of the, the feminine principle that exists within all of us, that because it has been so denied, we have all kinds of problems, one of which is negative body image and eating disorders, but there are also others. Um, and so this process of reclaiming that and then celebrating it, there's a line in uh, a jewel song that says, please be, please be careful. I'm very sensitive and I want to stay that way. That's what I'm talking about. That is an incredible line. And what I would love to do is shift a little bit into the metaphors because what I keep thinking of as you're talking about how women have this intuition or the feminine part of any self has this intuition that's told like, oh, you're wrong, you're too sensitive. And all. so, and then you were, were saying how this is often where body dysmorphia comes from, body image, you know, all of these things. Can you share the metaphor or the story of the emperor's clothes? Oh, okay. Because that's what makes me think of when that person saying, I see this mm -hmm. and everyone says, no, 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 you don't. Am I, am I too far off on that? No, that's it. it exactly. And, and I think um, that what I discovered many, many, many years ago, when I first started working with folks that were struggling with eating disorders and other eating difficulties is I uh, was trying to figure out what was going on. And that when I started listening to their stories very carefully, that's exactly the story that I thought about, the, the, the emperor's new clothes. And so in that story, you have an emperor who doesn't care much about ruling his kingdom. He's mostly interested in fine clothing and jewelry. And he has a reputation for this. So a couple of con artists, they come into town and, and they pretend to be tailors. And they say, oh, our clothing is so fine. Only those fit for their station in life can even see it. And this really impressed the emperor. So he commissioned a whole new wardrobe for himself. And these con artists pretended to stitch and cut cloth that wasn't even there. But all the people who worked for the emperor carried on about fabulous outfits because they didn't want to lose their job. And even the emperor himself went on and on and on because he didn't want people to think he wasn't fit for his station in life because they said only those fit for their station in life can even see the clothing. It's so fine. So eventually the con artists, they leave town laughing all the way to the bank. And there's this grand procession where now the emperor is going to wear his new outfit. And as he's going through the procession, everyone in the town is ooing and ah, is so wonderful. And of course, he's totally naked. But there's a small child in the crowd that says, but mommy, the emperor has no clothes on at all. And when this child spoke, it created a ripple throughout the crowd and everyone saw the emperor for the fool that he was. So what I was hearing as I was listening to the stories of these girls and women who were coming to see me was that they were like the child in that story. And what I mean by that is they had this uncanny ability to perceive subtle realities. They could read between the lines. They could see the bigger picture. They could perceive hypocrisy. They could sense when things were not okay, even if everyone around them said things were just fine. But because their lives weren't fairy tales, 
what happened when they spoke up. And, and this, this can be as, like as, as young as age four, where a, a kid would say, mommy, if daddy loves us, how come he never comes home? Or you know, something like this. What, what happened is they were either ignored or maybe they were rejected. In some cases, they were ridiculed, and even in some cases, they were abused for speaking up about things that others did not see and they did not want to see. And so, so the way the, the eating sort of came into the picture is they had to find some way to dim their light, right? They had to diminish this capacity to perceive subtle realities because what every child wants, what all of us want, is a sense of belonging and, and, and yet they confused it with fitting in, which is not the same thing. And so they tried to look like and act like and think like and feel like how they imagined. Others wanted them to look and act and think and feel. And they got further and further away from their authentic self, which created a vacuum for the eating disorder or the body uh, image issues to come right on in. I, I love that you brought up the belonging and fitting in because what it also, I'm, I'm a very visual person. So this is why I love sitting with you and hearing you tell stories because I can, I can picture it in my head as you're doing it. And I imagine a crowd of wanting to fit in yet everyone in the crowd feels lonely even though they're in the crowd, yeah. because they're not being true to themselves. I feel like for me, the difference between belonging and fitting in, when I belong, I feel like even if I'm alone, I'm not lonely. I could be in a crowd and feel safe. When I was trying my hardest, Anita, to fit in, which was when my eating disorder was at its peak, I could have been in a crowd uh, at a parade at all. And I have never felt lonelier in my life. Right. right. Because the connection to self wasn't there. And that's where all loneliness comes from, actually, is that disconnect from yourself. You know, it's interesting. Also, I, I feel very fortunate that I have known you for as long as I do, or as long as I have. Although I, I don't know how you got into storytelling and metaphors, because I know for me, it is the way my brain works. It's the way I understand the world. And I don't think you and I have ever talked about this. How did this start for you? Because it's powerful. Yeah, I think in part, that is the way I, I think in pictures. I... Um, I'm not exactly sure, but what I do know, so my background is, is indigenous. And a lot of the way I was raised as a child in a multi-ethnic, multicultural family on Guam was through storytelling. And that was the way I was disciplined. That was the way I, I was taught important concepts. And so, I, but I had forgotten that. And then many years later, when I was working as a uh, psychologist and my daughters were going to Waldorf school, they would come home with stories. They'd say, oh, today we learned about Prince division and Prince multiplication. And I thought, oh my gosh, I would know my times tables if I had learned it that way, right? And so that's when I started to realize, oh, I can use storytelling to help my clients understand concepts that are, sometimes it's really hard to wrap your mind around. And so when, when you present an image, 
it's a lot easier. And it's also now I know, because now I've been doing it for all these years and studying it, you use a totally different part of your brain. And, and so that's where things get really interesting because you start to use your, the right side of your brain and that's where new neural connections can be made. That's where we have our first initial experiences. So um, I just kept on using it. But in the beginning, when I was using metaphor I, and someone would get the metaphor, I would, I would see what I called the lights going off in someone's eyes. Now we know with neuroscience, What's, what's actually happening in the brain is the anterior superior temporal gyrus, which is a little fold right above your right ear, sends out a blast of gamma waves, which is the highest electrical frequency in the brain. And it's what creates new neural connections. So that's all pretty cool. But I didn't get to it through science. I did it in, in a more intuitive way. So I also know that one of the things that, that I use often, well, first of all, when, when I used to run groups, especially multifamily group, Anita, I, I use your metaphors all the time because what I noticed is family supports, however you define your original family or family you know, of origin or that you create, they would get it. They, they would stop judging their loved one and being like, why can't you do A, B, C, and D? And then I would say, let me put it another way. And they would listen. And I'm going to ask you to share two of my favorite metaphors. Uh, one is the log metaphor and the other is the red herring. And whenever I, I explained those two metaphors, every family member, every friend, every roommate said, I feel like I'm getting it now. Oh, okay. Now, now I understand it. Yeah. So, can you, I'm, I'm sorry, you look like you're going to say something. Yeah, well, I was going to explain a little bit about how come that works, right? <laughs> because, of course, I just started using metaphors, but I paid attention and really uh, wanted to figure out, okay, why does this connect? And there's a, there's a lot of different reasons. But one of the primary ones is that when you use a metaphor, you're not talking about an eating disorder. You're not talking about uh, something that's already familiar, so and everybody, everybody has their preconceived notions already of what it is. So, so you're creating some space for some new perspective to come in. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it's, they're so powerful. Uh, but also what, what Carl Jung said is when you're using a metaphor, it affects the psyche on three different levels. There's the mental where you're thinking about it. There's the emotional, because usually there's a little something tucked in there, maybe a surprise or whatever. But then there's the imaginal. And it's at that, at the imaginal realm where it activates your imagination that um, you get to go deeper into the psyche. And all of these three things happen simultaneously. And that's why you, you can get an instant connection in the psyche, which I, I think is pretty cool. It's, it's incredible. It is, it is so incredible. So when I, when parents or again, loved ones would, would say, you know, why can't you just get over this? Why, why would you hold on to your eating disorder? That's ridiculous. I, I would say, let me give you the log metaphor. <laughs> so Anita, I'm sort of like setting you up, you know, so, and no, you're on. Okay. So can okay. you do the log metaphor? Okay. So we begin, notice we begin with the imaginal realm. Imagine 
Imagine you're on the banks of a raging river. It's pouring down rain. You slip, you fall in, you're drowning. You're getting pulled down through the rapids. And along comes a big log and you grab on. And the log saves your life. It keeps your head above water when surely you would have drowned. And eventually, it carries you to a place in the river where the water is calm. And from there, you can see the riverbank, but you can't get there because you're holding on to that law for dear life. Now, to make it so complicated, I mean, here's the irony. The very thing that just saved your life is getting in the way of you going where you want to go in life. And there's usually somebody on the shoreline yelling, let go of the log, let go of the log. And you feel like an absolute idiot because you can't let go of the log. Well, the way I see it, letting go of that log may not be the very best thing to do initially. Because what happens if you let go of that log because that person on the shore loves you more than life itself? Or that person is the, the top eating sort of expert in the country. And you start to swim to shore, you get halfway there, and then you realize, oh, I don't have the strength to make it. Well, that means you don't have the strength to make it back to the log either, and you're really sunk. So we have a part of ourselves deep down that knows this, that will not, will not let us let go of anything until we're good and ready. So what do you do instead? Well, let go of the log and try floating. And when you start to sink, you grab back on. And then you let go of the log and you try treading water. And when you get tired, you grab back on. And then you let go of the log and you swim around it once, grab back on, twice, grab back on, 10 times, 100 times, 200, whatever it takes for you to have the strength and confidence to let go of the log, then you let go of the log. It is in that moment when other people understand and say, oh, I get it now. Because to somebody who doesn't have an eating disorder, hasn't experienced it, whatnot, it is very difficult to explain in a very rational, logistical way because it's it's not the way, it's not the way, or I'm going to use myself, it's not the way my brain was working. My brain was completely irrational. There was no logic going on. And, yeah. And it misses the feeling component, right? So if I were to say to you, oh my gosh, I have so much paperwork to do versus I'm drowning in paperwork. Now, when I say I'm drowning in paperwork, you can feel what I'm feeling, right? It's like, so so that's why it takes you out of that logical place into the more feminine place where you can feel what that's like to be drowning. That's also what it's like being in relationship with other. Hopefully we're finding people that, have enough compassion or open-mindedness or non-judgment that, because Anita, if you just said to me, I'm drowning in paperwork and I couldn't, my, I didn't think that way. I'd be like, well, too bad. But we try to find people in life that match our values, our souls, the way we think, perceive. And that's one of the issues. And again, I always use my own, my own example. I never looked towards people that were like me when I was in my eating disorder because going back to fitting in, I wanted to fit in. So I never got my needs met. Nobody ever said, oh, I get it because I wasn't attracting those kind of people or gravitating towards them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really a significant piece 
because one of the skills, and I, I use the metaphor of treading water or floating, or but the idea is there's some skills that you have to learn. And, and they're just skills. Anyone can learn them. It's not like you have to have special DNA, but you do have to learn these skills. And so what you're talking about is the skill of discernment, right? Who, you know, don't go to the hardware store for bread. <laughs> you're not going to get bread, right? So you have to, you have to start using, you know, developing that skill, um, assertive communication, essential skill um, for deciding who those folks are going to be that you're going to be vulnerable with and who those folks are going to be that you're not going to share too much with. I mean, that's, that's all part of, of the journey, but it is a journey. And, and that is a, a large part of the journey is, and this is why we talk about, you know, it's about the food and it's not about the food. You know, again, my own experience for me, it was sort of like growing into myself to feel safe in the world, to be able to discern. Not everybody gets all parts of me and that's okay. That doesn't mean that I'm hiding things. That just means that I have healthy boundaries. And so it's all these things. And again, with your word, the, the transformation, I, I was transforming into who I truly am am today. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that to me, that's why I do this work and I've been doing it forever because it's such a joy to, to really observe that, to watch people, to guide people, to give birth to themselves. And, um, it's, it's really pretty awesome. I think. Where, where did these metaphors come from? Did they come from, you said you grew up with a lot of storytelling? Were they ones that you've created? Are they myths? Like, like where do these metaphors come from? I, I'm not exactly sure. Um, it's, it, I, it may be, it may be because I grew up, there are a lot of different languages that were spoken. And so sometimes when you're trying to, metaphors, when you're trying to use one thing to describe something else. So it may be, I'm just guessing right now, because you asked, I remember the time, for example, with the log metaphor, and I was sitting across the room from a client, and I was trying to explain to her what to expect with the eating disorder recovery journey. And that that's when the and then the metaphor just came. So I, I can't really explain. What I do know is I notice a lot of my metaphors are water based. And that's because I grew up on a small island. And so I think water for me is it, it is so metaphoric in, in, in a lot of ways, but so is nature. And so if anyone is wanting to to work with metaphor, just look to nature. It speaks to us in metaphor. It's, it's true. It does. And I don't mean to be like, okay, next metaphor. Like, I don't mean it to sound like that. But again, I, I am, I, I could read your entire book on, on, for the podcast. Like, like I'll be like chapter one, everyone will be like, oh my God. But these, these are so important for different, for understanding or thinking outside of the box, the function 
of an eating disorder. It can take away shame, stigma, people are not so blamed, things like that. Can you now explain the red herring? Because that is an incredible metaphor. It's interesting because I've done some research on this. I didn't know the origins of the red herring. Uh, and, and the origins are there were, um, this was back in, I think the turn of the century in uh, England where they were having fox hunts. And they would have these competitions. And what happened one time is one of the competitors, they kind of played dirty. And what they did is they found a stinky dead fish, a red herring, and they dragged it through the bushes in the opposite direction so that when their competitors went looking for the fox, the dogs went after that scent of that dead fish. So that's the origins of it. But I'll tell you the way I use it. So... um. With a red herring, so let's say you're nowadays it's used a lot in literature, like a whodunit mystery. Who killed the old lady? Is it the maid, the butler, or the chauffeur? And everyone's following the story along. And then at the end, there's a twist. And it turns out it was the butler who nobody suspected because everyone was watching the maid because she was kind of weird. She was doing unusual things. She was different. And so... Um, no one recognized the real culprit was the butler because everyone was watching the maid. So with disordered eating, with negative body image thoughts, they're the red herring and they're designed to distract you from something that is maybe too painful, too scary, too overwhelming, too uncomfortable. And so that you immediately go to that. Um, and it happens in a split second. Uh, that's how fast it happens. And, and so once you start to realize, wait, that's the red herring, that's not the real issue. It's the distracting element. What might the real issue be? And a lot of times I have people hunt for the thought they had before that thought. So the minute you said, oh my God, my thighs, they're so disgusting. Wait, what were you thinking about just before you had that thought? And that's when it gets interesting. This is also when clients, and, and I'm saying this with a smile on my face, can be quite savvy when we're trying to work with them and all they're talking about is behaviors and behaviors and behaviors and behaviors and behaviors. And I say, no, 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 no. I want to talk about what's underneath, what's what's happening with the eating disorder. And they're like, no, no, no. I have to talk about the behaviors and behaviors. And I said, no, no, no. <laughs> I get that. I understand that. You're not going after that stinky, smelly fish. Yeah, I don't I don't have to go after the purge. We've been there, done that. It's all good. Let's go underneath it. But again, it's a protective mechanism. Yeah. Of course. Of course. You know, we 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 have to protect ourselves when we don't have the resources or the support to deal with it. And that's really what being triggered is. So, you know. A lot of people, the way they use that term, they go, oh, I can't talk to her. She triggers me or I can't go there. It's like, well, no, triggering isn't always a bad thing because what happens is we're kind of like dogs. If something is too big or, or too much for us, we have to bury it. We can't deal with it right then and there. But what happens is after a while, we forget where we buried all this stuff and we're going along, going along, and then boom, we trip over it and we go, oh, wow, we're triggered. So, you know, that's the same idea. It's like you think this is the issue, but no, there's something beneath that, something that's buried there. This is also why I like metaphor, because the, I, think, I think that language is very important. I, I love words. And I'm very aware when people 
use a word, I'm going to say incorrectly, like, or like the word trigger. Oh, they trigger me. Oh, they trigger me. Like we're, some words, and again, as another red herring to just, they, they get thrown out so quickly. So, you know, like an umbrella. And I say, no, no, no. First of all, are you meaning like, wow, you have it, you're feeling it in your chest? Are you feeling something? That's not, like you said, it's not always a trigger. It's not always a bad thing. But we just like when we say to clients, how are you doing today? And they go, I'm fine. <laughs> that sing songy, I'm fine. So words are so important. Uh, you look like you were going to say something. Well, I was going to say, and also it, the distortion then starts happening in the mind because when you say, uh, oh, she triggers me, it was like, no, nobody triggers you. You trigger yourself. You buried the bone, right? And, and so it's an opportunity for me. That's a window to find something that maybe has been unconscious, which is simply out of your awareness. And to seize that opportunity, when you say, oh, somebody did something to me, then you lose that opportunity just there. So you use the words to conceptualize something that takes you away from your deeper truth. Yeah. It also slows things down, I think. Mm -hmm. and, and forgive me, I'm going off on a tangent right now, but we we live in a world of like, you know, just shortening everything like JK for just kidding. Or if, like, of course, everyone knows what that is. I or LOL, like. We don't even say full words anymore to describe our experiences. And by the way, for people that have high sensitivity, I don't think little words like that capture our experiences. And so if we can slow down, be present throughout our experiences, articulate them. Mm. I love what you're saying because it helps me understand why I can't stand emojis. <laughs> They're just like, I have a bit and, I, and I'm going, what is it? Why don't I like, it's like, why don't I like licorice? I don't know, but I don't like emojis. But now I'm starting to think, oh, that might be why it's a little too um, condensed and, and minimizing. As soon as you said licorice, I, I thought of another. And again, everybody, this is not just the Anita Johnston metaphor show, but I just can't, I, I want, <laughs> I want to get them all out. I, I All of a sudden, I just started thinking about hunger, mm. physical hunger, emotional hunger, spiritual hunger. Can you talk about the two tanks? Yeah. So I think um, it, it helps to understand that there are two kinds of hunger. There's physical hunger, and then there's emotional and spiritual hunger. And the way we can find out what our true hungers are is you first have to be able to understand what the sensations are of physical hunger and satiety in you. But then what happens is we find ourselves turning to food, whether it's to restrict food or binge on food or whatever, when we know we're not hungry or full, it's like we know that we're doing it for other reasons. And that's the tank B, because in tank B, food is not food. It's a concrete physical symbol of another kind of hunger that you're experiencing and may not even know about. And for me, this is really where the fun of recovery begins, because what you start to understand that the foods that you crave or restrict are talking to you. They're actually talking to you, but they're talking to you in code, in metaphor. And to understand them, you have to crack the code. So I'm going to give you this the simple 
thumbnail sketch for how to do that. If any of your listeners want more of this, they can go to lightofthemooncafe.com and download a PDF. That'll kind of spell this out so they can, and there's also a little quiz they can take so they can find out what their foods are trying to say to them. But the idea is this, cracking the code. Sweet foods usually have to do with feeling like there's not enough sweetness in your life or you're not sweet enough. Crunchy, salty foods are typically associated with unexpressed anger and frustration. Warm foods like stews are, are usually connected to a craving for emotional warmth. Spicy foods, and now we're talking either craving for or a um, uh, uh, not wanting to have. Spicy foods are usually connected to excitement, stimulation, and change. And chocolate, we know this from Valentine's, right? It's love, romance, sensuality, sexuality. So when you can start to look at the foods metaphorically, it's astounding what you can discover about really what your true hungers are that you may not even know about. Anita, I, I swear, and I say this with everyone, I could go on and on and on. We are, I, I hate bringing this to an end, but we are, we are going to have to start closing this up. Um, I, everyone knows they'll get all your information in the show notes. It's so, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to share or something that you want to tell people? Um, and I feel badly. I feel like I've done this before. I sort of, I get anxious sometimes when I have to end with a guest that I'm like really, really passionate about it. And I feel like I just went, okay, got to go. We got to end. So I apologize. That was a really hard turn. It just dawned <laughs> on me. So everybody just listened to my entire process. Um, but Anita, we have to start winding down. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Well, I, and I think it's probably something that you have shared, and but I want to emphasize it, that recovery is possible. And not only is it possible, but there's a world beyond your wildest dreams. Uh, you, you, that's, it's really worth every little tiny baby step, every little inch that you make because it's, it is extraordinary. And the other part, and I mentioned this before, because I believe it with every fiber of my being, those that get on the recovery journey are the people the world has been waiting for. And, and because what happens is once you get on that path, you're bringing a level of compassion and empathy that is sorely needed. So I just, I'm cheering everyone on. It's like, thank you. <laughs> we appreciate all the hard work because it's hard work. Yeah. It's so interesting. And, and people have heard me say this probably a thousand times. I often say to the clients, can you imagine what you could be doing or accomplishing or where you will go in the world if you use the energy that you use towards your eating disorder towards something you truly value and are really passionate about options are endless mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and that's pretty much what you're saying so Anita I cannot thank you enough for being on the show it it really means a lot to me I have, I have such beautiful memories of of all the years we've known each other so I just thank you well, thank you. I've loved spending this time with you. I missed you. <laughs> I miss you so much. I miss everybody. It's we're we're hopefully, hopefully gonna get back on track. But 
until then, at least we're, we're still connecting one way or another. We can't help ourselves. I know. I know. (laughs) All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit Karen Lewis edc.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another recovery bite. Thanks for listening. <laughs>